You had kids had lines memorized. Somebody went up there, they was a thespian in here. You had, you had kids that were fighting for the stage. I didn't know if they wanted the limelight or just wanted to fight. You had kids that was whole time talking to their moms. Kids that was, oh, that was fantastic. Well, I've lost. There's not a word I'm going to say this morning that's going to make any difference to any of you. So next time they will close the meeting <laughs> because it is tough to follow that. Jeez. Can we, they're not in here, but make sure you think, and I don't, know all of the people who were involved, but I know Anita, who's the one who gave the final instructions to go this way to the kids, she worked really hard on this. So I can't remember all the names of the people, but thank her, please, when you see her, thank her. That's a lot of, I mean, you know, it was, it was parents up here stressed out. You know how it is. <laughs> you know how it is. It's one thing to take your kids to children's ministry and you don't know what they're doing unless, unless that number flashes, right? But when you're up here, you're like, stop, stop. No, no, I mean, it, it was some, I thought it was sign language at first, but it was just, you didn't want to interrupt, so parents were doing all of this, you know. I talk with my hands, too, so I get it. I was just like, yeah, I was agreeing with the mom, even though I didn't know exactly what was going on. So, grateful for that. Grateful for the children who are learning to understand what Christmas is all about, because we know we live in a, a country where Christmas is a sort of a secular time to feel good about yourself and buy gifts for others, but the real meaning of it is lost often, and it's the church's responsibility to, at very least, make sure that we remember, you know, what the season is about. And it's not really about the season. It's credible, credible scholarship that would question if Jesus was actually born on December 25th. So it's not about December 25th, per se, but it's about the Savior coming into the world for the salvation of everyone in this room, whether you currently believe in Jesus or not. All right, let's, let's try my best to say something that will be meaningful. Last week, Carl did an amazing job laying out the sort of a theological foundation of the image of God. Now, when I structure series like this, this is... For those of us who are members of the church, this is an unorthodox series for us. We've never done a series like this, and the way we're approaching it and teaching it is different. So when I'm thinking through how to do a series like this, I'm trying to think, okay, we have to think about the attention span of people. Often when you are the communicator, you have all this stuff, and you think, I can't wait to say all of this, and you realize people have an attention span that ranges, depending on your preaching style, it could be from two minutes to maybe 22 minutes. And that's when people start being like, man, what's, I'm getting hungry. What time is, man, bring the kids back up. What is something? <laughs> All those things are true. We understand that. We get that. I get that. So I understand that my teaching ability is not what causes anyone's attention or what changes people. It's the spirit of God. But he laid out a foundation. As I thought about this, this series, I thought that being made in the image of God is a weighty concept. It's really big. You could do a whole you could spend a year on this topic and get into the details of it. And so I thought I was going to do two messages, but I thought, but you know what? Carl is a gangster, right? So Carl might knock it out of the park and I'll just go to something else. And he did a phenomenal job laying down a great theological foundation. So today I am going to just add to a little bit of what he said, not in any way replacing, but just adding to it. Because I, I do think there's another angle to consider when we're thinking about what is it mean to be made in the image of God. So let me say two things by way of reminder, because I know that in a series like this, you go from week to week to week to week to week, you forget some of the foundational things that help us understand why are we communicating this way? This is an unorthodox series for us. We typically pick a passage and walk through it. This is different. So remember that the lens of scripture that we're looking through is what we call the supernatural storyline of the Bible. In other words, there is there's scripture that's the word of God, right? But then there are ways that God is speaking with, competing with what we have called divine counsel, cosmic powers of darkness. God created supernatural beings that rebelled against him and, and, and are in the world actively putting out narratives in the world. We call them today other religions. 
But there are narratives that, that supernatural beings that God created, we see this in places like Psalm 82. You see crazy scenes like God gathering a divine council in, in 1 Kings 19 saying, who's going who's gonna to hurt Ahab? Who's going to trick Ahab? And the spirit says, I'll do it. God says, well, how will you do it? I'm going to put a lying spirit in all of his prophets. Okay, go ahead, do it. It'll work. That'll preach. And it happens. Now, you could think, wait a minute, doesn't God, how? he uses divine beings. Well, some rebelled against him and have created narratives to rival his narrative. So the Bible is a competing clarification of reality from God. It's what he's trying to do. Now, because God is the Alpha and Omega, he writes his word knowing all things from beginning to end. This is important. Because if he's competing with the cosmic powers of darkness and knowing all things, well, then God has to find a method in the way to communicate to his people. And it's what we call today progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Things that start off one way eventually become something much deeper and fuller because God is masking his true intentions from the cosmic powers of darkness that are at world, that are in the world operating. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us this in verses 6 to 8. Here's what it says. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Listen to this in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So now we've known this from previous messages that this phraseology, rulers of this age, isn't talking about like the president and vice president, talking about supernatural powers of darkness that God is at odds with. And he did not put everything in his word so clearly because he didn't want them to understand what he was doing. Because if they had known that killing Jesus would bring about the redemption of what we have, they would have not have killed him. So that progressive revelation is God also not letting them know what he's doing. Now, remember, our goal is to create an endless fascination with God through this series. That means it doesn't mean every sermon you're going to walk away with. We're so law-driven. We're so mosaic, right? We read the Bible. What is it? What do I, what do I have to do? What do I not do? What do I do? What, how does it apply to me? What does it speak to me? Sometimes God's word just says, listen, you read it because it's telling you who I am not necessarily what you have to do. And sometimes what we have to do is learn how do we be more fascinated with God and his word instead of what do I stop and what do I start? Oh, it's at, oh, I should, I'm going to stop, get off of social media for a while. Maybe. Or maybe it's just, man, let me just be like, wow, this Bible is actually more incredible than I give it credit for. And I want to learn more about it than I previously thought I needed to. So last week, Carl did a great job. He alluded to the question of who is the us. He made this point about when the Bible says, let us make man in our image after our life, then no one really knows what it means to be made in the image of God. I love that he said that. Carl's a great theologian, knows a lot. So when he says, nah, no one really knows, I think no one really knows. <laughs> I think he's right. Now, when you think about what is the image of God, there are two primary trains of thought that are sort of in evangelicalism. The first is when God said, let us make man in our own image, that he was talking within the Trinity. All right, so it's Trinitarian comment. God's talking to the Trinity. And that's sort of the first, I'm just very general, first sort of train of thought. The second train of thought, which is kind of recent scholarship, has now said this. No, 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 no. There was a divine counsel there. So when God said, let us make man in our own image, he's talking to the divine council. Why would the Trinity need to have a conversation within itself when it's always aware of what it's doing? Sounds good. 
but it's not bulletproof, right? God is sovereign and knows everything, so why do we need to pray if Jesus said the Father already knows what you need before you ask it? So it's not tight logic, but it's helpful. The challenge for me and what I see a lot in modern evangelicalism is sort of dichotomies, right? There's so much either or in the church that there's not room for nuance. And maybe it's not either or, maybe it's both and. Like, we don't know. It's not like God said it, so we're all speculating here, right? My favorite theologian, one of them, Tom Schreiner, I was having lunch with him one day, and I just asked him, man, how do you come up with some of the stuff that you, all the theology? And he said, you know, he said, you can, you're free to speculate on what the Bible doesn't say as long as it doesn't contradict what it does say. Once I heard that, I was like, are you sure? I said, yeah. That was it for me. I'm off. Free to speculate. So I want to offer a speculation today. And I want to base it on what I see in the Bible. I want to offer a hybrid position that I think it's both and. I think that the let us make man in our image is actually God speaking to himself but allowing divine beings to hear it. It's not a conversation with them per se, but with him for a few reasons. One, the emphasis is on us. Let us make man in our image. Now, if the divine council were a part of creation, it would make sense. But it doesn't seem grammatically accurate. Let us make man in our own image. I'm going to do it, though. Now, God is not always grammatically submitted to how we define English, right? Before Abraham was, I am. Not really a grammatical. I mean, I'd probably get in trouble in English class. I think God is talking to himself. It's a conversation within himself, almost like thinking out loud, but allowing the divine beings to hear because it's God who makes man. He says, let us make man in our image. It's God who makes man in his image. I can't prove this from the Bible, but it just makes sense to me. One more thing that Carl said last week that I thought was profound, and I hope you guys heard this. He made a point. He said, that instead of thinking about what is the image of God, it's better to think we image God, right? So the noun is we are the image of God, and the verb is we image God. We do things. I agree with that. But I do think both the noun and the verb are actually helpful in thinking through what does it mean to be an image of God, an image bearer. Now, a lot of theology has tried to answer the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I want to ask a different question today and try to answer it. Not what does it mean or how are we the image of God, but why are we the image of God? Why did God, when he was creating everything, announce, let us make man in our image? There's nothing else in creation that he said that about. So why are we the image of God? To answer that, I want to make two observations that both look at the noun and the verb. Let's begin in Genesis 1, 26. Here's what he says, and I quote. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. One more thing Carl said last week that I thought was brilliant. I don't know if you caught it, but it's important. He said this, that this statement in Genesis 1.26 is the first time the designation of male and female is put out there. So that, that's an important statement. It's an important statement. Now, we assume that animals are created male and female because they procreate. So we make that assumption, but it's not until Genesis 7, when God is telling Noah to go get two of every animal, male and female, that that designation is given to animals as well. This distinction, this distinction was made about humanity and somehow it's directly connected to being made in the image of God, being made male and female. 
God wanted everyone to know he intentionally created humanity in his image as male and female. So how does male and female make us the image of God? How does that happen? Well, let's start with the uniqueness of humanity's creation. Look at Genesis 2, beginning in verse 5, and I quote, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of death from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature. So you get this phrase, the breath of life, and God specifically, explicitly describes that he made man and that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's explicit. Now, the language of breath of life, we see at the end of chapter 1 describing all creation. Listen to what he says in Genesis 1, 30. He says this, And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that, has, that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So it doesn't seem like breath of life is unique because he said every creature that has the breath of life. I will submit to you this morning that the breath of life described that he gave to Adam is different than what he described that all animals have. Here's one reason why. Genesis 2, 18 and 19. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. So you see right there in these verses, it says that God formed every beast out of the, out of the dust, right? Every creature was made out of the ground. But Adam is also made out of the ground. We saw that in Genesis 2, 5 through 7. He said this, verse 7, that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So Adam is created from the ground. Animals are created from the ground. But there is a clear difference between Adam and animals. Both from the ground, same language, clear difference. Breath of life to Adam, breath of life to animals, difference. There's a difference. Because God is describing, you have to understand, when God said, let us make man in our image, every detail he gives us about humanity is what it means to be made in the image of God. And he singles out the breath of life. He wants that to be clear. Now, we have no idea how animals got the breath of life. But he's clearly emphasizing that Adam, he breathed into Adam. So it serves a different purpose. It could be the trichotomy between body, soul, and spirit. But the Bible's not clear. What is clear is Adam is created from the ground and given breath of life that is unique to being made in the image of God. And then we see another uniqueness in the creation account of humanity. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We've read this story and heard it so often that we can miss an opportunity to be astonished. Look at verse 22 again. And the rib that the Lord took, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. This is an astonishing statement for, for two reasons. Before I was a Christian, when I was in high school, there were people in my school that used to mock gay people. And they used to say this. I wasn't a Christian, but everyone knows the story of Adam and Eve. And they would say this. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. 
is a very crude way of talking to people. It's a crude way of just dismissing whoever anyone is. Say, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Because I'm a wordsmith, I thought it was kind of clever, to be honest, with the Eve and Steve and the bar. I thought it was a bar. <laughs> but it was crude. But as I later on in life became a Christian, and I saw there are better ways to speak to that situation than that statement, I realized there's a profound question in that statement. Why did God make Eve instead of Steve? Why did he? Consider this for a moment. Within the Trinity, there is perfect unity. God didn't create because he needs. God created because he loves and he shares. God sharing isn't an attribute that people talk about a lot, but God shares. He's benevolent. I like community. But within the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Perfect unity. But they're all masculine. Father, son, and spirit are all he's. And then you have the angels that God created. He calls them sons of God. So you have perfect unity in the divine realm and they're all described as he's. The only time you see any, at least from my understanding of scripture, the only time you see any female divine beings is in Zechariah 5.9. Where these two women have wings that are carrying a basket with a woman in it who represents evil. But you don't hear daughters of God. You hear sons of God. They're all essentially he's. Now, in the grand scheme of God's design, he could have made men or some men capable of having children biologically. He could have if he wanted to. He could have. He could have done that. And it would actually make sense because within the Trinity, there's sort of this maleness that's a he. Perfect unity. The sons of God are he's in union with God. It makes sense that he would make a Steve that would resemble the kind of unity he has in eternity. But instead, he makes a whole other creation. He makes a she. Despite all the unity among mammals, he makes a she. Why does he do that? Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly answer that question, but I'm allowed to speculate, as long as it doesn't violate what Scripture's already said. So let's have a little fun. There's something happening here that's directly connected to being made in the image of God, male and female. Let's look at the uniqueness of Eve. Genesis 2, 21, 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up, closed up the place of flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, so here's Eve's unique creation. Eve was not created out of the ground. God could have easily, like he did all the other animals, he gave up animals and they were together and it, he could have made her from the ground and presented her to Adam and Adam would have been satisfied. There's no real reason God had to create her out of him, but he, create, he could have created her out of the ground, it would have been fine. We wouldn't have cared at all, we wouldn't have even known. But he creates her out of Adam. That's the first time that ever happens. Now, the ribcage, I don't know if you know the important functions of the ribcage, but the ribcage functions are to protect, support, and help with respiration, with breathing. Man, if I had time, I would say something about that, the ribcage, and what Eve represents to Adam. But I don't have time for that. 
You know what else she didn't get? She didn't get the breath of life breathed into her like Adam did. She just basically had it. Because God, when he presented her and Adam woke up, he wasn't like, well, Lord, what's wrong with her? She doesn't look like she's alive. <laughs> he didn't have any complaints. It wasn't like he was like, whoa, what's going on here? Why? Can you wake her? Hey. <laughs> she was alive. Well, the Bible doesn't say she breathed into Eve the breath of life because he took her out of Adam, so the breath of life was already in her. She was like Adam and that she came from him, had the same flesh, same bones. I would submit the same breath of life, same spirit, maybe soul. She was like him, but she was also completely different from him in a complementary way. And this is where people get into the doctrine of complementarianism, which I agree with that doctrine, but I think it's much deeper than that. So why does God create Eve instead of Steve? Why does he create her out of Adam's body instead of out of the ground? And how does this uniquely connect to being made in God's image, to us being the image of God? I would submit to you this morning that, that Adam and Eve is a Trinitarian display. It's not just they were created by God, sure, but there's a distinction here that is uniquely Trinitarian. Adam and Eve are a reflection of the dynamics and the way the Trinity works on some level, which we'll never understand, but God doesn't want us to understand everything. But let me give you a little something to help you understand how we function. This is what Adam and Eve do. Now, to best understand this, let me, let me use an analogy of the way we describe the Trinity. Most people describe the Trinity as this. And the Trinity, if you don't know, is God, God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are all God. So you could say some people would be like, well, those are three gods. And we would say, no, we don't believe in three gods. We're monotheistic. We believe in one God. But that's, no, so we say God is one in essence, but three in person, three distinct persons. That's how we describe God. He's the same essence, but he's different in person. Eve is the same essence as Adam, but she's different in person. She's different. She's the same, breath of life, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, but she's different. Sort of like the Trinity. Same essence, different in person. Different roles. The Father is God but has a different role than the son. And the son is God, has a different role than the spirit. Eve has a different role than her husband, but she's equal to him. She's equally different. 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says this, warning husbands. He says, husbands, I don't want no problems. This is, this is the word of God. I don't want any problems. We try to resolve conflicts, not start them. I don't want any problems. Here's what he says. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, I meant that physically, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. You're the same in terms of the grace of life, but she's the weaker vessel than you. So you're different in that sense. So just, just as a placeholder, the male and female distinction, female being created, a whole new gender or sex, I don't know if it's gender or sex today, it's, it, you, it, there's so many crazy stuff going on, that make you feel like you crazy, not knowing what you're talking about. Let's just say female is a different thing than Adam. <laughs> I'm being facetious. But there's more. There's more. So that's just one observation. That's the noun. We are the image of God, male and female. But then here's the verb. We image God. Love the language that Carl used. We image God. We do things in a way that resemble God. 
Now, if you're in seminary or you're reading systematic theologies, you're going to have this, you're going to stumble across a chapter called the communicable attributes of God. And these are all attributes that aspects of God that he shares with humanity. That's what that's, people would say. That's how we're made in the image of God. It's different than animals. So things like reason, volition, creativity, you know, aesthetic sensitivity, capacity, volition, you know, do things of our own will. Then you got the cultural mandate side. Procreation, God created humanity, we create humans. Dominion over the earth, God rules the earth, but he tells us to do it. Exercising our will, God exercises his will. This is kind of typical of what people say of how we image God. But there's something else that we need to consider this morning when we think about we image God, the verb. Let's look back at verse Genesis 2, 22. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, remember, everything that he's describing is what it means to be made in the image of God. And so this term, one flesh, is described. One flesh. They become one flesh. If you're like me, what does it mean to be one flesh? For the majority of believers, these two words are describing a sexual union. You become one flesh. And that's because the Bible describes it that way. In fact, every time one flesh is used in the Bible, it's pointing back to Genesis 2, 24, and describing a unique bond that God has ordained. Matthew 19, Pharisees are asking Jesus about divorce, and here's a brief snapshot of the conversation, beginning in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, he being Jesus, spoiler alert, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, quoting from Moses in Genesis, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one flesh, two, but one. Would therefore God is joined together, let man not separate. So here Jesus is describing there is a unique bond that God brought together when he created Adam and Eve that is, that is emblematic of all marriages. And God says you become one flesh. But being one flesh isn't just about a sexual union. Here's one of the reasons why we know. Listen to what he says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.16. Here's what Paul says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. The two become one flesh. Do you know that in the Bible, the term one flesh is only used in the sexual union between a male and a female? There is no other sexual union in the Bible where it is classified as being one flesh. There's not one. But we have plenty of sexual unions described in the Bible, men with men, women with women, humans with animals. When those happen, not once in the Bible is that called one flesh. Only when it's male and female. It doesn't have to be married. Paul's warning here about a prostitute. So if you join with her, you become one flesh with her. So for some reason, it's not all sexual unions, but only when it's male and female is it one flesh. Why is that? What is it about one flesh that is uniquely created in the image of God? What does that have to do with it? Ephesians. Ephesians, chapter 5. This terminology comes up again, but we get a bigger clue. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, he who loves his wife loves himself. I don't want any trouble. Yeah, but I'm saying, Pastor Kurt, sometimes she, I don't, this is what the, God said this. 
I'm going to hear it. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24 again, and he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Huh? So the marriage and becoming one flesh refers to Christ and the church? Now, Paul said it was a mystery. Let me say one thing to that. When Paul wrote this, he was the only one writing this theology. The Holy Spirit was revealing to Paul these things. And when he wrote this some 2,000 years ago, it very much was a mystery. But we don't have to read that term and think it's still a mystery because we have thousands of years of scholarship. We have people who have understood the languages, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. We have documents, Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a ton of things that Paul had no access to. He was explaining for the first time these things. So what is a mystery? I don't think it's as mysterious as it was when Paul wrote it. Now, usually from these verses, people go to procreation. Yep, check. Complementarity, check. Roles in marriage, check. But I think this is saying something deeper. There's something deeper about what they're saying. This Christ in the church, therefore a man leaves his wife becomes one flesh. So let's really quickly, let's do a chronological account of being made in the image of God, all right? Number one, God creates humanity in his image, male and female. Number two, he creates Adam first. Number three, he breathes into him the breath of life. Number four, he says that Adam needs a helper. Number five, God uniquely creates Eve from Adam's rib instead of out of the ground. Number six, Eve is different from Adam, but of the same essence. Number seven, it says, a man shall leave his father and mother, and they shall become one flesh. Eight, marriage is a creation ordinance, is now established. Last, all of this is part of how we image God. One more thing we have to emphasize. Genesis 2.24, and which in Ephesians 5.31, it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It doesn't say that a wife shall leave. Now, that's implied, obviously. I mean, people will quickly go to Ruth when Naomi says, I will, your people will be my people and your God will be. Okay, we get that. But in what it means to be made in the image of God, it says a man shall leave his father and mother and join his wife. If the emphasis is on the man leaving, not the wife leaving. This is important. Now remember, progressive revelation. What starts off as one way, we understand it better later on, particularly in Jesus. All right? So how does all of this connect to being made in the image of God and that we image God? Therefore, a man shall leave his father. The son of man leaves the father. He leaves the father. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, now we don't talk like this, but you can pick up on what he's saying, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or he was with God, he was equal to God, but he didn't count that something to hold on to, is what he's saying. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of human men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. So here we're learning that Jesus, equal with God, was with the Father, decided that, it wasn't, that he didn't want to just stay with the Father, but he emptied himself, becoming a human being. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. The son of man left the father. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The son of man joins his wife. People said Jesus wasn't married. That's not true. That's not true. We're not talking about the Da Vinci Code. We're not talking about Dan Brown. And he married Mary and the kings of France and all that. By Felicia. But we are talking about John chapter 3, beginning in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and, and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness? Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John is describing Jesus as the bridegroom coming for the bride. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and 2. Here's Paul saying this. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. The son of man leaves the father and join to his wife. Jesus joins to his bride. And the two shall become one flesh. Jesus becomes one flesh with his bride. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Colossians 1.22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So Jesus becomes one flesh. He becomes like his bride. He takes on the flesh. He becomes intimately in a body. Hebrews says, look, bulls and goats weren't, weren't worship enough for you, so a body you have prepared for me. He takes on the flesh of his bride. He becomes one flesh with the bride. The body of Christ. That language, the body of Christ, is another illustration. The terminology in Christ, or what we theologically call union with Christ. You start hearing language like this. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is important. These prepositions are intentional. It doesn't say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are with Christ. It doesn't say that the law of the spirit has set you free with Christ. It's in Christ. He's trying to portray a uniquely intimate relationship that you are in Christ, which is why Christians are now called the body of Christ. Because Jesus became one flesh with his bride, just like Adam and Eve became one flesh in creation. Now the, now, the scripture describes it slightly differently. We're called the body of Christ, but the analogy is, or the reality is, he says in, in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 16, we looked at this, 16 and 17, we looked at this a few minutes ago. He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So it's the same terminology. It's communicating a uniquely, distinctly unique, intimate relationship that a husband and wife have in one flesh or that you have with anyone in one flesh, if it's male or female. And God is saying this sort of resembles Christ in the church. Because the son of man left his father, joined to his bride, took on one flesh. 
And now we have the motif of marriage as a fundamental theme in the Bible. Listen to Genesis, uh, Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. This marriage motif becomes the main relational dynamic that Christ has with his people, that God has with his people. Yes, there's sons and daughters, but marriage becomes the overall motif. One last thought. Remember how this started when God said, it's not fit for Adam to be alone. He needs a helper. John 14, beginning of verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent him. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. John 15, 16. But when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. Make no distinction that God does not use words in random occurrence, that this is intentional. The language is intentional because God is meticulously perfect. There's no accidents here. The terminology means something. Remember progressive revelation. Things that initially meant one thing have a deeper and fuller meaning now that Jesus has come. So let's wrap this up. How do we image God and how are we the image of God? Well, in Christ, we see a few things. The fuller revelation of marriage is not being married to another human being, but being married to Christ. This is important because in our culture, particularly in American evangelicalism, we have idolized marriage so much that we've made people who are not married feel less of the body of Christ as if somehow in all the language of one flesh is about being married and you can't have this you unless you're one. But Jesus is the ultimate form of one flesh and the ultimate image bearer. And he wasn't married to another human being. The fuller revelation of marriage is not being married to someone else, your soulmate, but being married to your eternal soulmate. The helper that Adam needed in Genesis was there because God knew that the second Adam, Jesus, was eventually going to send the helper. So Adam got a helper. If you're married, you have a helper. Jesus sent us the helper. The language is intentional. The fuller revelation of one flesh is not intimate sexual activity between a male and a female, but about an intimate relationship with Christ, about being in Christ, in the body of Christ, in spirit. The fuller revelation of male and female, different in person, same in essence. And in Christ, all of those different people come together and form one body. First Corinthians 12, he talks about we're a body. The arm and the hand and the feet and the it said you're all still one body. So the body of Christ is totally different in person, but we're the same in Christ. This is not random literature occurrences. But God meticulously, perfectly describing and making a connection to help us see that what he started in Genesis 2:24 that we build tons of doctrines on have a fuller manifestation each and every aspect of it. The complexity, this time of complexity, and these thematic connections that progressively flow through the Bible, no cosmic power of darkness could have done this. If you read the literature, 
especially of the religions that were around the ancient Near East and the Mesopotamian religions, Canaanite, Kemetic, and you know, Assyrian, and Ugaritic, and, and, and Babylonian. Their, their stories are bizarre. I'm talking about you got to be on shrooms to be like, this makes sense. Which I wouldn't recommend. Thank you. Pastor Kurt said, no, I didn't say you should use shrooms. I just said, if you're on shrooms, it might make more sense. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? Cosmic powers of darkness couldn't have pulled this off. So what is the image of God? Human beings created by God to be like him in this world. Simple, basic. Why do we image God? Why do we do these things? Why did he? Because he knew, God knew that Christ was going to do everything that he wanted done in a way that he wanted it to happen. And so by giving us, by creating us in his likeness, which means like him, he set in motion, had us start to do the things that Christ would eventually do perfectly. He created us to be like him. We do the same things, but Christ did them in a much fuller way. And now we see this beautiful picture, starting in Genesis 2.24, that's marriage and the institution of the family and all these things, which are 100% true. But then you realize as you go further down and you make these connections, you think, wait a minute. Jesus is not just king of kings and lord of lords. He's image bearer of image bearer. He is the ultimate image bearer. And now that he's come, what it means to be made in the image of God is to be like him. There's a reason why we're not trying to do just good works. Look, humanity has been given a degree of righteousness, right? So there are people who do good works. There's a reason why when 9-11 happened, and you saw the building crumble and all that dust was coming and everybody was running this way. There were police officers and fire department running towards the dust to save lives. All of those men weren't Christians, but there was a sense of rightness, justice that all human beings have. So everyone has the capacity to do something good. But when you're now that crisis come. Oh, being made in the image of God is we don't just do good works. We do good works in him. So we use language like I'm trying to honor the Lord. Being made in God's image is to be Christ-like. Now, it's the return of being a child of God. Make no mistake. Beginning in Genesis 3.15, which will be our next sermon, when God told the devil, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring. He was saying, there are children that belong to you. Not all children belong to God. And then in John 8, I love, whenever you get a chance, just read John 8. And just, just let, let me just see how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees. These would have been the strongest leaders of the day in that culture. And they say, oh, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, your father is the devil <laughs> in front of everyone. Indicating there are children that belong to Satan and children that belong to God. So for us, being made in God's image is a return to being a child of God, obeying him, doing things for his glory. And so we persevere in all these things because every dynamic that he laid out in Genesis from the helper to the one flesh has a fuller meaning in Christ. And that is something no cosmic power of darkness can recreate that. Remember, they too small. You're not big enough. Let's pray. Father, I, I you know, Lord, so many of us, we're so, so many people who you let Feel this role of preaching are so aware of their personalities and their teaching styles and their hermeneutics and their education and their homiletical. These things don't matter at all because there's not a joke or a personality, 
a preaching style that can do anything to change a person's heart. It's your spirit. So, Father, I pray that even if there was something I said that people liked and agreed with or thought was funny, at the end of the day, it means absolutely nothing. If they don't respond in their hearts to the things that they agree with and appreciate. So, Lord, there's never been a sermon that's about the person preaching it. It's always about the person they're preaching about. So I pray, Father, that you would do the necessary work in the hearts of your sons and daughters that are in this room. And Lord, I pray that if there are people here who do not believe in you, that I pray that you would use something that was said today or maybe something that they heard elsewhere that may be reminded of what was said today or forget what was said today. Lord, I pray that you would you would open their hearts to receive and believe what's true. Jesus, you left the Father to join and become one flesh with humanity. And those who would believe in you would be a part of this analogy of the bride. And then you tell us that we're now the body of Christ. We're in Christ, what we call union with Christ. This is so important to who we are and why we do what we do. Father, I pray that you would help people who don't understand this, that they would ask questions. I will be here for a bit. There are others that are here. Lord, open their hearts to understand the truth. This is not about some dude preaching that you like or don't like. This is about you bringing people here to hear this particular word today because they have a choice to make. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room who's not a believer, that they would make the choice to say, I want to put my faith in you, Jesus. And for those of us that are believers, we would make the choice to say, I want to continue to persevere in you, Jesus. This is for your glory and for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Are there a few questions? We'll jump into them. We're obviously a little bit late. If you don't have communion, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, we participate in communion. If you don't have a communion uh, thing, please get one from the back. In fact, can somebody bring me one? It would be awkward to do communion with this water. Thank you. All right, we do have a few questions. All right. Um, uh, we have one question that is uh, sort Thank of like the beginning of creation and how we see that creation story for um, Adam and Eve, but then there are more people there and... Um, you know, as, as the story continues. Yeah. So they're asking, you know, how did those people come to be, you know, are they created in the same way? Do they, ha do they inherit the spirit of God in the same way? H how does that, how does that look? How does that work? So if you're saying spirit of God, meaning the Holy Spirit, that is something given to people who put faith in Jesus Christ. So that wouldn't be, everyone doesn't have the spirit of God in what we would call the Holy Spirit, but everyone has the breath of life in them that I think is unique. The Bible's not clear on what that looks like, but I do think it's connected to sort of the idea of body, soul, and spirit, something that makes us uniquely different than animals. So in that sense, no, everyone doesn't, doesn't get this, the spirit of God unless you believe in Jesus. In terms of people being around, I mean, I just, I just believe what the Bible says. So I believe that Adam and Eve are the author of humanity. So I think all human beings came from them, and God knowing that these two people, like, here's some things that we don't understand, right? So before the flood in Genesis 6, there were some different things happening in the world that changed after the flood. We have no, so we don't know how long it took. We don't know that it, it took nine months for them to have a child. We don't know how God, what he did in that process. We assume that what we think happens is what's happened all the time, but there's a clear distinction between before Genesis Six, and then after the flood, the world changed, things changed. And when we get to Genesis 6 and we talk about, we'll see some of the things we're talking about. So, I, you know, I, I think Adam and Eve birthed humanity. And I think the Bible speaks of that as that's the case. So I agree with that. All right, we have another question. Um, if the divine is purely masculine in, in most of the descriptions we have, um, then they'd like a little bit of help understanding how women are then part of the image of God. Well, because I, I think that's a great question, but I think that's the point of God creating. See, when God created Eve, right, 
first time we know of that the female distinction is established. When God did that, that set in motion the idea of marriage and, and a bride, right? So Jesus didn't have a, he's not a bridegroom that created another bridegroom. He created women so that they would function in a way, because here's the thing you have to understand, being made in the image of God, I'm, I'm not, I, I could be wrong about this. I'm not sure if angels are called that. Divine beings aren't called image of God. They're called sons of God, sure. The ones who rebelled against God aren't, but, but they're not called image of God. So the image of God is uniquely given to humanity. And since God created woman out of Adam, it set in motion sort of this idea of women being a functional necessity to what it means to be made in the image of God. And the motif of marriage is now established where God, knowing that he's going to have a bride and consider it a bride, creates Eve to go with this motif of marriage. And so you see in marriage in Genesis, you see it in Revelation. So women are important, not because we're not divine beings in the same way. They're not called image bearers. We are. All right. Uh, last question we have for right now. Um, if you know Jesus came and sort of brought that idea of you know uh, unification with God and then being like made in His image again, you know that having that image renewed um, to be something glorified, then. Um, is the enemy at work doing the same, making people into his image? Man. MC Hammer can't touch this. So, for those of y'all that know about that, too many youngins in here, y'all don't know about that. You can Google that. Can't touch this. Uh, I got to wait till next sermon. I got to wait because, because I think that's an important question that I think fills out in Genesis 3, which we'll do not next Sunday because that's Christmas, but on January 1st. So I'll say this. I think Satan's move, what he's trying to do is what I call the uncreation. I think he's definitely doing that, but I can't get into details. I want to hold off until to the next message, but it's the uncreation. When you think about what he shows up, what he says in the garden, what he's, he's always undoing, trying to undo. So he's trying to, I don't think uncreate is actual word, but I'm from the streets and I rap, so I can say these things and do that, so. All right. Let's get back to, not that we've avoided the main thing, but let's specifically talk about the main thing. Every Sunday we get to, as a church, even if I forget or don't somehow bring us back to the truth of the gospel, we get to do this every Sunday. Now, this is specifically something. There are a few things that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. In fact, you won't find many other things besides what we're about to do where Jesus specifically said explicitly, do this in remembrance of me. So because of that, he meant do this in remembrance of me, meaning people who believe in me that remember what I did. So that's what this is. It's called communion, the Lord's Supper. So we do this every Sunday, but this is specifically for people who actually believe in Jesus and are by default remembering what he's done by participating in this. So if you're not a Christian, we're not trying to shame you. We're glad you're here. Hope you enjoyed yourself. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. But this would be the only part of the sermon we'd ask you to not participate in, part of the service, because this is really for those who believe in Jesus and are now doing this because we remember what he's done for us. We remember that he left the Father to join with humanity, become one flesh with us, and then to be brutally beaten and die on the cross because we are incapable of obeying God fully. He was beaten, crucified on the cross so that you and I would not spend eternity being beaten and in effect crucified for our sins. Rose from the dead proving that everything he said about who he was was true. And so today, 
And every Sunday, by his grace, we get a chance to remember that his body was broken so that we would be whole. Let's eat together. And we drink this, reminding us of his blood that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given us. Thank you for this Sunday, amazing time of worship, an amazing kids pageant. We saw some future stars here, Lord. Okay message and an even better reminder of your grace through communion. Father, I pray that as we approach the, the day that our culture refers to as Christmas, that we in the front of our minds, and in the fullness of our hearts, always live in light of you coming into earth and becoming the fuller realization of the image of God. And so what you started in Genesis, you slowly revealed the fuller meaning over time. And now we have a much fuller perspective on who you are and who we are in you. May that be true of us as we are distracted by our jobs, our lifestyles, our bad decisions, our sin habits, as we will be pulled and prodded to, to trust and, or just live condemned because of, Lord, help us to find the balance that comes with forgiveness and perseverance and obedience. May we do all of this for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. While I was, at the end of while I was preaching, I felt like the Lord wanted me to say this. Um, that the Lord wants everybody in the church, particularly members of the church, at 820 to be praying for the Washington Commanders versus the Giants game. <laughs> your pastor will be there. I will be there. And I believe that the Lord is asking all of you, if you do not, then I question your salvation in the Lord. All right, if you are, uh, if you are 